This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Audible, where you can download the audiobook of your choice for free from audiblepodcast.com slash missionlog. Before we get to the next thing that we're getting to, we have a question for you. What do you do when you're all caught up with Mission Log? Well, if you're not watching more Star Trek, you can download a great audiobook and get deeper into the ideas discussed here and the place to start is audiblepodcast.com slash missionlog. If it's the singularity or warp drive, Audible has a book for you. Now, you've heard us talk about Star Trek, but how about hearing from the stars of Star Trek? Books like Star Trek Memories by William Shatner, narrated by William Shatner, or To the Stars, the autobiography of Star Trek's Mr. Sulu by George Takei, narrated by George Takei. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ken, if I have both of those audiobooks in my iPod at the same time, do they get into a fight? <laughs> yeah, is that okay is, well the problem is one's going to rip off their shirt and grab a sword the other one's just going to have a shirt ripped off him and then they're going to go at it maybe i mean you, wow. may, you may be in for added fun if you actually have both of those books on your ipod or ipad or you know whatever because it plays on you know whatever if it plays mp3s it'll play your audiobook nice and you know what if you are not into science fiction and let's face it, if you're not into science fiction and you're listening to our show, we should really have a talk, a serious talk. But if you're not, or if you're just expanding your horizons, Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from. That's from any and all genres. So go crazy. Download something. And like I mentioned before, it'll play on just about anything you have that plays an MP3. Smartphones by any maker. Of course, iPods, iPhones, iPads, all those fun things. Yes. So get started with your free audiobook today at audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. That's audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. Now entering nerdist.com. Mission log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 10, Dagger of the Mind. Blasting into your cerebral cortex, another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, recap the story, set it to music, and sing. But not really. What we actually do is examine the show from as many angles as we can, trying to suss out the morals, messages, and meanings, and decide whether those three M's plus the production itself stand the test of time. On this week's edition, Dr. Tristan Adams wields the Dagger of the Mind. Oh, but before we get to that today, we want to hear from you. If you have a comment on one of our episodes or an episode coming up, let us have it on Twitter with the screen name at MissionLogPod or by email MissionLog at Roddenberry.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail on Skype at MissionLogPod. That's our Skype handle there, MissionLogPod. Or call us the old-fashioned way, like Mom and Dad did. 323-522-5641. 323-522-5641. And your comments may be played on a future episode of Mission Log. Well, it's about that time, Ken. Every episode, I like to hit you with some trivial knowledge. Thank you very much for not stopping with Hit Me. <laughs> no, I would never do that. Um, all right. So trivia. Uh, this episode, Dagger of the Mind, was the last episode to be credited solely to Gene Roddenberry as a producer. Now, it doesn't mean that Gene Roddenberry wasn't a producer anymore, but he got sole production credit on this one. A um, couple of other interesting tidbits. Uh, the character of Dr. Noel was intended to be Yeoman Rand, but as we discussed in a previous episode of Mission Log, her time on that show, the actress, Grace Lee Whitney's, was coming to an end. Um, also wanted to point out that the exterior of the Tantalus penal colony is the same exact matte painting that they use for that lithium. Uh, this is before dilithium. So the lithium cracking station in where no man has gone before. But if you're like me and you watch the Blu-ray, you'll see that they gave it a totally new design and they went from the giant industrial complex to a little uh, kind of a cylindrical building on top of the elevator shaft that uh, Kirk and Noel take all the way down in to the penal colony. That's interesting. I guess that that must mean that when I'm watching on uh, Netflix, because I'm I'm that's how I'm watching it. I watch it on Netflix. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't notice the building, so I'm guessing they must be actually doing the remastered things as well. Obviously not going to be as high quality as Blu-ray, but they must be showing... Netflix must have the remastered copies because I would have recognized the same building from, what, four or five episodes ago, I think. Yeah, they, they might be doing that. And, you know, I, I watch every now and then on StarTrek.com, mm-hmm. and pretty much they've only been the original episodes. So I, I saw it once with the original, and then I saw it on Blu-ray and went, oh, yeah, they really changed that. And uh, j- just in case anybody was surprised and they were watching it and they went, oh, no, 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 don't go in there. Gary Mitchell is going to come out and kill you. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't worry. Different planet. He's going to roll his giant tinfoil balls out. <laughs> <laughs> and crush you eyes. with them. Yes, yes his eyes. Well, I don't yeah. understand what people are thinking when I talk about that. Uh, I got to say, a, a little bit of trivia from me, and I know, I know, <gasps> no. I know almost never, uh, pretty much if it has to do with an actor. Mm, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's pause a moment for Mr. Zaz. Um, <laughs> great to see character actor, and I guess maybe leading man at some point, but I think of him as a character actor, James Gregory here. I always loved him and Barney mm. Miller, though. Um Especially for this show, his role in the Manchurian Candidate, the original, uh, seems a more fitting mention. And we'll probably hit, you know, why that would be the case uh, momentarily. Totally. Oh, hey, I've got one more knowledge bomb to lob your way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The title, Dagger of the Mind, is uh, like a lot of Star Trek. There are a lot of Star Trek titles, including uh, movie titles that are from Shakespeare. Uh, Now, the Bard himself did not know that he was contributing to Star Trek. Of course, this is done much later. Um, But the line, Dagger of the Mind, is actually taken from Macbeth. And uh, it is Macbeth who is uh, uh, contemplating murdering Duncan. And uh, he sees a dagger. And then he talks about the Dagger of the Mind, the false creation. So, you can take a look. Go back and read Macbeth. I thought you were supposed to say the Scottish play. Oh, yeah, that play about Scotland, the Scottish play. (laughs) Does he think he's the only one who knows Shakespeare? Let me bust out the bard. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. Were it not that I have to be quiet now for the episode recap. Prologue. The Enterprise is exchanging supplies with a penal colony on Tantalus V, workplace of the preeminent scientist Dr. Tristan Adams. The Enterprise has trouble beaming its supplies down to the colony's force field because, duh, it's a prison. Problem solved, Tantalus beams up a box clearly marked Do Not Open, so they don't see the guy stowing away inside. A crazed-looking individual. It appears there's an escaped prisoner on the Enterprise. Act 1. Supplies exchange. The Enterprise breaks orbit with Tantalus 5. Kirk is sad that he couldn't meet Dr. Adams. Prisons are so awesome since people started following Adams' teachings. More like resorts, according to Kirk. McCoy doesn't buy it, though, saying a cage is a cage. Just then, Tantalus Colony calls to say, Hey, you may have an escaped prisoner on board. With a recently transported case found empty and a crewman or two found unconscious. Yep, turns out they've got something on board. Crazy escapee makes his way to the bridge of the Enterprise, demands to speak to the captain, then demands asylum, or at the very least to promise that he'll not be taken back to Tantalus V. Kirk says no dice. The escapee threatens to disable the ship, though he is instead disabled by the left-right combo of Kirk and Spock. The Enterprise makes a Yui and heads back to Tantalus V. En route, Bones gives the escapee a good going over, medically speaking. There's something wrong with him, but he's not sure what, and gosh, Jim, it'd be swell to study this one. Kirk says it's not their problem, though, which enrages the escapee. They think they know so much. They just want to wash their hands of him. The two quiz the man. With some pain, apparently caused by answering their questions, he says his name is Simon Van Gelder. He says he was an administrator on Tantalus V. He says he could tell them more, but sadly, that more has been erased from his brain. Spock does some research, and sure enough, Dr. Van Gelder was an administrator on Tantalus V, assistant to Dr. Adams. Adam says Van Gelder experimented on himself, though Bones thinks this is untrue. He enters an official notice in his medical log, forcing a reluctant Kirk to investigate further. He and a member of the medical staff will beam down to the Tantalus colony. Act 2. The member of the staff is a lovely young lady named Dr. Helen Noel. Not only is she a psychiatrist with a background in penology, she's also someone with whom Kirk apparently had a heavy flirtation at the science lab Christmas party. Kirk is uncomfortable. After a scary elevator ride that ends with Kirk in Noel's arms, they're greeted by Dr. Adams. 
This being a prison, Kirk offers to check his phaser, though Adam says that won't be necessary. Kirk goes to check in with the Enterprise by communicator, though he cannot due to the colony's force field because, duh, it's a prison. Adams kills the force field, Kirk checks in, and Adams proposes a toast. Soon they meet Letha. She used to be a prisoner, though she's since become a counselor. Kirk asks what her crimes were, though she sees no point in discussing them. That prison, she says, no longer exists. Adam says it's part of their cure, eradicating the horrible memories and burying the past. Adams takes Kirk and Noel on a tour of the facilities, which Kirk finds impressive. He asks Adams about a room where something's going on. This, Adams explains, is a failed experiment, a neural neutralizer. He doesn't like to talk about it because it doesn't work, though they keep plugging away in the hopes that it might help some of the more violent wards. Funny enough, Van Gelder is on the Enterprise saying he doesn't need a neural neutralizer. Planet side, Adams explains that Van Gelder tried the neural neutralizer on himself. While it's perfectly safe, he did this alone and at too high a volume, which basically scrambled his brain. Kirk asks how it works. The tech running it explains. Satisfied, Kirk toddles off, though the audience is let in on a far more sinister truth. The tech guy tells the guy in the neural neutralizer chair to forget everything he's just heard and that remembering it, or trying to, will cause terrible, terrible pain. Spock and Kirk chat, with Kirk saying he and Noel will stay on Tantalus V for the night. This leaves Van Gelder apoplectic. They must get Kirk back to the Enterprise, says Van Gelder, for he is in grave danger. Adams, he says, will destroy Kirk. Act 3. Meet the mind meld! No, it's not called that, but that's what it is. Spock applies pressure here, says some soothing words there, and he's hip deep in Van Gelder's head. The mind meld has broken the effects of the neural neutralizer, and Spock finds the truth, that Adams has attempted to erase Van Gelder's own thoughts and replace them with his own suggestions, which are meant to become Van Gelder's beliefs. At the same time, on Tantalus V, Kirk asks Noel whether the inmates didn't seem a little vacant. Noel waves the Adams banner. He's so awesome, why don't you just ask him? But Kirk wants to investigate on his own, and being the captain, check the braids, he gets his way. They sneak to the neural neutralizer and find it much more effective than Adams had led them to believe. Turn it on Kirk for two seconds and Kirk basically loses those two seconds. Turn it on Kirk and tell him he's hungry. He misses the moments but says he's famished. Let's try a third time, says Kirk. And Noelle starts spinning a yarn about what she wants him to believe happened at the Christmas party, worthy of a Harlequin romance. It might get racy, but Adams catches them playing with the neural neutralizer. He figures he'll teach Kirk a lesson, or bend his brain to his will anyway. Pulling Noel away from the controls, he begins the process of breaking and rebuilding Kirk as we head to commercial. Act 4. Helen nurses Kirk to consciousness in his quarters. He is madly in love with Helen, though she reminds him he's not. This is a neural neutralizer suggestion implanted by Dr. Adams. Kirk kind of remembers and sneaks Noel into an air duct with the mission of finding the colony's power and knocking it out. While she's gone, Kirk willingly goes for another of Adam's treatments, presumably to cover for Noel's disappearance. Adams has Kirk back in the neural neutralizer, turning Kirk into Adam's most ardent supporter. But Noel's disappearance is discovered and Adams wants to know, where'd she go? This question, Kirk has the strength to fight. Noel is able to momentarily knock out the facility's power, which knocks the neural neutralizer offline. Adams and his tech go to get Kirk back in the chair, though he judo-chops his way past them. After a bit of bad luck for one of the colony's staffers, power is once again knocked offline. This allows Spock to beam down. He more permanently disables the colony's shield and restarts power for the rest of the colony. This restarts the neural neutralizer. Adams, left unconscious on the neural neutralizer treatment room floor, comes to with the full power of the beam shining down upon him. No one's at the controls. No one's there to talk him through the emptiness the neural neutralizer brings, leaving him empty, gone, right dead. After a passage of time, Van Gelder, now apparently running the Tantalus V show, radios to let Kirk know that the neural neutralizer room has been dismantled and the equipment destroyed. The end. This is a big provocative episode even mm -hmm. though it feels small like we're not going to a lot of places um the bad guy i kind of question his motives and all that but there's a lot of little details and i want to get through right away and then we're going to get into our big discussion but there are a couple of things that just jumped out at me first of all kirk hey uh, like you said in the recap he thinks that penal colonies are just great 
They're, yeah. they're resorts. Yeah. Bones, what are you talking about? A cage is a cage. No, 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 no. People, they want to go to penal colonies, <laughs> is what he's saying. Well, um, yeah. I don't know how much time Kirk has spent in prisons, but, um, you know. Well, again, he, for the past 20 years, Kirk's a young man, you know, when yeah. we're going through the first season. And, well, obviously all three seasons or you know, the first three seasons of Star Trek, the first three iterations or whatever you want to say. When, mm-hmm. During the TV series, Kirk is a young man. And, and the Federation has been um, yeah, molding, building, shaping prisons or rehabilitation facilities, whichever you want to call it. And, and it's kind of funny because the people on Tantalus 5 actually refer to it as a rehabilitation facility. But but still, all of their stuff is labeled penal colony. You know, yeah. um, Doctor Adams has been doing this for over twenty years. I seem to remember them saying somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so all of the prisons that Kirk has visited, unless he's been to you know um, a Romulan prison or a Klingon prison or some other alien prison, all the prisons he's vi- he's visited um, have have been you know places that Adams has has worked on. And Adams right. Adams is you know one of these people who you know is famous for, for the work that he's done. And so, True. yeah, I mean, you say you don't know how many prisons he's been to. I mean, it's like how many McDonald's have you been to? If you've been to one, you've been to most <laughs> of them. And at this point in the Federation, if you've been to one prison, you've been to most of them because they're all, they're all sort of, you know, going the Adams way. So he's just saying, if, if you're going to go to prison, go to a Dr. Adams prison because that's <laughs> the best kind of prison. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, now with that said, Kirk is, he's pretty much ready to just wash his hands of, Van Gelder. Van Gelder calls him out on that. And it, Kirk just says, well, it's not our problem. So he, he's not really ready to get involved in this whole thing. As swell as that prison is, he's just like, well, you know, send well, him on his way. I mean, it's interesting that you're bringing this up here because this actually feels to me like it could. And this can be a sub point if you want to. We've got mm-hmm. the same. We've got one of the same problems here. And I think we've actually got a couple of the same problems here that we had in What Are Little Girls Made Of? Um, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Dr. Roger Corby says, Hey Kirk, come down and see me by yourself. Kirk's like, yeah, maybe. Cause you're Roger Corby. Are you kidding me? Why wouldn't I? We've got the right. same thing going with Dr. Adams here. I mean, Kirk, I, I mean, you know, I think if they had picked somebody up at an alien planet and this human had said, Hey, they're really mistreating me in this prison. Then Kirk would have been, you know, inclined to like really look into it because he doesn't know the alien from, you know, anybody, yeah. but, <laughs> yeah. but he knows the name, uh, Dr. Adams. And, you know, Dr. Adams has that has that seal of approval as far as the Federation is concerned. So, you know, complain, say what you want, whatever. Come on, dude, you're in good hands with Dr. Adams. So, yeah, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, but now Kirk at least is taking the good advice of McCoy and Spock to be skeptical about this whole thing. And when he is kind of needling Adams a little bit, uh, and Dr. Adams throws his story back at him saying, oh, you're, you're like the skeptic who wants the, the all the mysteries of the world explained to him while he's standing on one foot. And, and he kind of uses skeptic as a bad word. But, but Kirk is right in this instant. He, he needs to be skeptical of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously a very bad piece of science, and Adams is very condescending, just saying, essentially, I'd explain it to you, but you wouldn't understand. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and Kirk is okay with that answer for a little bit, uh, and then he just goes in there and decides to try it on himself, <laughs> you, know? you know, which is probably also a bad piece of science. Yeah. You, you've used an iPad, right? Sure, of course. Yeah. yeah, okay. And you know how easy they are to use? Yeah. Okay. You know when you talk to somebody and and you say, you've used an iPad, right? And they say, I don't understand technology. (laughs) This this to me is Kirk because when he goes to look in this episode, because when he goes to see how the neural neutralizer works, Mm -hmm. there are two knobs. Yeah, right. right. There's there's what they call a volume and then there's an on-off knob. And and that's pretty much the whole thing. Kirk will not touch this thing. (laughs) Right. <laughs> he wants a trained psychiatrist in the uh, in the uh, in the form of uh, in the form of Doctor Helen Noel. Please call her Helen. Yeah. Um, he wants a trained psychiatrist to run the machine because yeah, with you know, if it had maybe if it had one knob, but there are two. <laughs> right. His deference, I think, is not. I mean, is because I mean because we've got the wall of, you know psychiatry or we've got the wall of uh, you know Kirk's not a doctor and he knows he's not a doctor and he will defer to people to an extent. Um, yeah, it may be a little too deferential this time. 
And um, speaking of the neural neutralizer, yeah. so there, there's the, the moment that you mentioned in the recap where Spock goes back in, he turns the power back on. Now, he has no idea that Dr. Adams is in the neural neutralizer booth. He couldn't know. But basically, by turning the power back on, he just killed Dr. Adams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, oops, I, I, I guess he did that. Nobody seems to really investigate this idea of like, wait a minute, wait. at the moment that that came on, when Dr. Adams was in there, oh, wait a minute, Spock. <laughs> I guess you killed Dr. Adams. You know, there was an, and, and there's another thing that would have borne a little follow-up investigation. Uh-huh. It seems to me when Kirk wakes up and he's in love with Helen. Yeah. And yeah. Helen says, no, 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 that's just an idea put in your head by Dr. Adams. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we remember, but, you know, before Dr. Adams got there and said you're in love with Helen, Helen was seriously writing like a, like a serious, like a serious, um, what are they called? Well, I guess a Harlequin. I don't want yeah. to use the yeah, romance novel. She was writing a serious romance novel. She was writing Fifty Shades of the Christmas Party <laughs> for uh, for Kirk and for Helen. But then, you know, when he doesn't remember anything because all that's been erased by the neural neutralizer, you know, yeah. then she's like, oh, yeah, look, look what Dr. Adams did to you. Right. Uh, but but and, and that's kind of it. It points to this mixed feeling that I have about their whole relationship, because as soon as she shows up, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, oh, man, are, are we really going to go here? Are, are we just going to have the, you know, the, the hot female crew member of the week and then Kirk? gets to ogle her and uh but at the same time i thought okay well this is kind of charming he's young kirk and he's he's flustered even though it's the weird pretense of the the christmas party um and then i just kept thinking well well, wait a minute now i i still don't like this because it says the captain of his own ship he's just like carousing he he hits the science lab christmas party and he's just as wild as anybody else okay now but it's interesting because it i did not realize when you said, uh, you know, in the trivia part of it, that it wasn't supposed to be Helen Noel, it was supposed to be Yeoman Rand. This goes back to what I was saying last week, how sad it is. Um, so in Miri, we have Yeoman Rand finally confessing that, you know, she has always wanted Kirk to notice her. And we had Kirk saying earlier than that, you know, that he had noticed her. And right. so then right. to find out that it was going to be the two of them down there. So so take Noel out, take the quick rewrite of the Christmas party out because it wasn't supposed to be a Christmas party. Go ahead and put Yeoman Rand down there. Yeah. And so when Kirk says, let's, let's do this a third time, but just try something totally improbable. Then you might have Yeoman Rand saying, one time you came in and we kind of kissed a little bit. Mm. And that mm. might have actually advanced that story. I know you you were afraid you were afraid. I mean, of, of something that didn't happen forty six years ago. You were afraid <laughs> that that might have led to sort of a jump the shark moment, or might have led it, a little too much to a, a Sam and Diane kind of thing with the two of them. But my thinking is it it might have actually created a story arc that would have gone um, that might have been a bit more interesting than just the you know ingenue du week, as you say. I, I still say that would have been a huge jump the shark moment if this had been yeoman rand planting romantic ideas in kirk's head oh uh, this would have been a disaster uh, okay. so unlike the psychiatrist that we've never heard from of before and we'll never hear of again well but hey apparently kirk is made of pretty strong intellectual stuff because he can have this machine wipe out his memory and be reprogrammed by this machine but then when you say oh no 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 that that was fake then he's okay he, he can get over it yeah. He's all right. They don't really talk so, about that part. No. No. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because Van Gelder, as we mentioned, does end up running Tendalus 5. Mm-hmm. But he can't say his name at the beginning of the episode. Now, I don't know if it was the mind meld that healed him or if he actually has to go one more time back into the neural neutralizer. And, right. And if he, if he actually does, who is he going to trust to do that? I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or is he actually going to say, no, 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 really, I've got this. I know it can be dangerous, but trust me, I so don't want this to happen Yeah, uh, that I will do it myself. Yeah. There was one other thing that I do love in this episode, and it's not it's not part of the message moral or anything like that, but it's just a great little piece of design. Um, mm-hmm. The logos on the, uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the clothing of the people who work at the Tantalus Five Penal Colony are, are, are very much, I mean, they're right from the cover of the Living Bible. Um, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if people know the Living Bible, but it was kind of that groovy Bible from the 1970s, written in sort of modern, oh, yeah. modern English, you know, where 
it's quite possible that in one of the gospels Jesus was hanging out. Yeah, you know, right. With, right. With the with the disciples. <laughs> yeah, he was groovy. Yeah. yeah, I mean he he was fairly groovy. I don't know if groovy actually appears in the Living Bible, but it's that kind of that kind of thing. And so oh, the logo yeah. is like this is like the sort of geometric sun, you know, that's kind of neat and looks almost sort of stained mm-hmm. glass and this weird sort of like almost cartoon hand that's like a big, you know, sort of yeah, friendly looking kind of hand and then uh, there's a there's a dove, which is of course a Christian symbol of of uh, of, of peace, or actually I guess it would be mm-hmm. would it be Christian or would it be or I guess it would be Judeo Christian, wouldn't it? Because it was Noah who sent mm-hmm. out the dove and the dove came back. Okay, so Judeo Christian symbol of peace, and this Judeo Christian symbol of peace, or, or just this symbol of peace, uh, is being crushed between the thumb and forefinger <laughs> of the big friendly cartoon hand, and I don't think it's meant to look like it's well, no, I. It, Obviously, the people who are there are not meant to think that it looks like it's being crushed, but I do believe that whoever designed it sort of designed it with that kind of sort of like subtext of sinister, right? Because, yeah, for all this peace and wonder stuff, there, there's a there's an iron hand ruling Tantalus V, and it is the iron hand of Dr. Uh, Dr. Tristan Adams, of course. But I thought it was kind of neat that it's like, oh, what a groovy little look. Hey, what's that hand doing to that bird? <laughs> See, that's interesting that you saw it that way. I, I, you see it as the dove piece being crushed, you know, uh, and, and to me, I kind of looked at it and said, okay, well, maybe this means that, that man is trying to achieve, is trying to reach this peaceful moment. Not, not being crushed as much as being um, captured, bent to its will and controlled. There we go. I, I mean, I feel like that logo, that is the logo for what Adams is actually doing. Mm. If that makes any sense. And it's, it, it, mm. I mean, it's not, they never talk about it. It's, you, you have to pause it to really get a good look at it. Um, if you're watching, you know, a video of it or a DVD or you know, a stream or something like that. It's, it's not like part of the show exactly, but I, I loved it because it was kind of like, wow, suddenly that, lo- I mean, as you watch the show, that logo takes on a different meaning, it seems to me. Hey friend, you look troubled. Is something bothering you? Here, let me wipe those memories out of existence for you. Like I said at the opening of our discussion, to me, Dagger of the Mind is a really provocative show. There's a lot going on here. There are a lot of topics to discuss. And the first thing is, I think we have to lay out what's going on here in the 23rd century. We're saying... Well, we still have prisoners. We we still have crime going on and some crimes that are so horrible that we have to ship these people off planet and keep them contained where there are no other people that, that they could possibly affect. And we're still struggling with how to handle them. You know, we, we enter this debate here of is it more appropriate to punish and just capture or are we rehabilitating and then if we are rehabilitating how are we going about that is it effective and is it just and is it moral and i couldn't help through all of this but to think of a clockwork orange well sure i mean that's that's very much what they do in a clockwork orange right they take something that mm -hmm. he um they make violence painful for him Little Alex in yeah. Clockwork Orange is a very is is a very he likes to practice the ultraviolence, I believe he calls it. He um, does. And and um yeah, and so they make those impulses very painful for him. And oddly enough, it really doesn't work out any better for him than it does. Yeah. Than yeah. it does in uh than it does in this episode. So yeah, I, I totally get why you thought of Clockwork Orange. I actually found myself thinking more about Dollhouse. The, oh, uh, really? The Joss Whedon show. Yeah, because it yeah. was all about erasing, you know, erasing thoughts and, and replacing them with something else uh, to a different end initially. But it turns out that was much more sinister as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's that that was what I got. I'm I'm, I'm more a child of the uh, 21st century, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you now? <laughs> no, but, I, you know, I, I tend to think I am, I guess. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get I get the clockwork orange reference, but I, yeah. I kept thinking dollhouse the whole time. Well, Clockwork Orange was written in 1962, so it, it, it's not like this idea would have been completely foreign to uh, to discussion, you know, for a, a sci-fi series as cutting edge yeah. as Star Trek was. And, and just from kind of a, a scientific um, point of view, this idea of the neural neutralizer, to me, it isn't such a hard thing to imagine. You know, I, I mean, our brains are designed in part to forget. 
you know, we, we are constantly redeveloping and recreating our memories based on scattered and fading information. So the brain is at first very malleable and we can very easily fool ourselves with false memories. So even though the the tech in this is something that we kind of have to take with uh, a, a bit of, uh, you know, a little, little leap of faith here, the, the tech part of it may not be completely realistic, but the idea here, I'm sure, has been talked about and considered for a very long time, and it's not out of the realm of possibility, I don't think. Um, well, I mentioned earlier that... Um Oh, I've already forgotten his name. It was my trivia, too. Mr. Gregory, whose, whose mm-hmm. first name escapes me now. Is it James? It is. Um, his most memorable role to me is in the Manchurian Candidate. We didn't have a yeah. we didn't have a neural neutralizer in the Manchurian Candidate. We basically had um, hypnosis and post-hypnotic suggestion and maybe drugs as well. I can't remember. Mm. But um, this is not a new idea. And in some ways, this goes back to... I mean, this goes back to things that we've already seen a few times and just and just a few episodes that we've covered so far, um, probably most notably in um, what little girls are made of. Boy, we love that episode, don't we? Well, I mean, that episode <laughs> gave us a whole lot to think about. But certainly yeah. when uh, when 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 Corby, you know, says the whole thing about, yeah, you know, it would be great. We get, we make it so people don't get sick and they don't die and hey, they're not jealous anymore and they don't hate. And suddenly he's talking about thought control at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, the difference between Roger Corby and, uh, and, um, and, and Dr. Adams is <laughs> Dr. Adams has done, has figured out how to do it on meat. Whereas yeah. Dr. Corby can only figure it out with gears. And so right. he needs to, you know, do away with the meat, upload the person to the gears and then take those things out. Whereas, you know, Dr. Adams will just, it's like shaving a haircut, but different. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and they both, you know, Dr. Cormier and Dr. Adams see this as a cure. They they think that what they're doing is altruistic. Um, but again, I go back to this thing about A Clockwork Orange because in that story, Alex was cured supposedly by the Ludovico technique, which is associating violence with physical pain. But then he has to come out of that in order to actually be cured. And I'm using the quotes around that, air quotes, for those of you who can't see me. Um, He's only cured when he really gets back to himself, as awful as that self is. Oh, see, have you read the the book? I did back in high school, yeah. With the 21st chapter? Oh, maybe I haven't. Yeah, it changes changes the clockwork orange entirely. Uh, And why Kubrick... I know this is not, you know, this is not what this show is about, but why why Kubrick uh, chose to make it with the American version? Here's the thing. There are 21 chapters in the original version, in the original book, A Clockwork Orange. And in the 21st chapter, Alex grows up. Alex decides, you know what? I mean, he's running the streets. He's doing all the stuff that you're talking about. He's just as violent as he was. And then he comes across one of his old droogies who has a kid and is not dressed like a like a like a gang member anymore. And is actually mm-hmm. becoming sort of a, a, a functioning member of society and, in fact, a contributing member of society. And Alex at the end of A Clockwork Orange – spoiler alert – Alex at the end mm-hmm. of the book, A Clockwork Orange, with the 21st chapter, grows up. He decides that's not what he needs anymore. Um, the problem is American publishers decided that what Anthony Burgess was doing was selling out. Mm-hmm. And he thought American audiences could take the toughness. And so he said, we're only going to publish your book here. If you uh, if you eliminate the last chapter and Burgess, of course, you know, wanting money and wanting to get his work read, <laughs> said, eh, sure. And so so that's why we have that ending. But I mean, there, there's more to it. It's not just it's not just about breaking the violence. I mean, he does actually still grow up after that. And that's way off topic for what we're talking about as far as Star Trek goes. But well, but, but the, the, the two stories have such a close parallel. Yes. Yes. No. And uh, and as does this with what a little girl's made of, which brings me to another question for you, because I kept thinking, well, here's Dr. Adams, who has this incredible power at his hands, and he's not afraid to use it. And he's not afraid to use it on Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we were very clear about the motivations that Dr. Corby had. Yeah, he he, he kind of he had a plan. He wanted to go to a planet, build robots, take over the galaxy. I'm not sure I understand exactly what Doctor Adams was going after here because 
he could have just gone down a the route of being the misguided scientist. Right. But instead, he's just sort of reprogramming people at will. All right. Let's back up a little bit. Okay. We keep going back to argue about Corby. <laughs> I don't think Corby's plan was to take over the galaxy with robots. I think Corby's plan was to replace everybody in the galaxy with robots. And I do believe that there is a difference because <laughs> there, there, there is. There ultimately, is. And actually, and as I said that, I thought that's more accurate. <laughs> ultimately, what he was trying to do was give everybody immortality. And yep. ultimately, also what he was trying to do, even when he started talking about, you know, we're going to program this out and this out, was making people happier. Now, is that right? No. That is the wrong way to go about it. And I think we all agree that that is the wrong way to go about it. Ask people if they want to be robots. Don't make them be robots. Okay. Right, right. Uh, what Dr. Adams was up to is a little bit more of a mystery because it does seem like what he's trying to do is rehabilitate his, his um, wards. But then he puts Kirk in the chair and he's just like, you trust in me completely. Yeah. <laughs> you believe yeah. in me entirely. And it's sort of like, okay, what are, what are you doing now? Because, I mean, Kirk was not a prisoner who needed to be rehabilitated. Now, of course, you do have to kind of – you do have to sort of erase the memories where Kirk knows that you're doing something wrong. Right. At that point. But, I mean, he's still – I don't know. I think, I think, Corby's, uh, I think Corby's intention was uh, misguided, absolutely, but, but purer than, than, than what uh, Dr. Adams turns out to be. Yeah, it, it just, it, it seems like, you know, again, and I kind of pose this question with Dr. Corvey. Well, if he has this ability and he has this uh, experimental line here with this technology, well, why not do it correctly in the first place? Why, why not go slowly and use the scientific method and not encroach on people's rights and manipulate their brains so you have to think then that he has some other motivation in what he's doing we're just not privy to it but but i will say that in this episode i think that's okay that we don't totally know what his motivation is we have a a, a solid bad guy here and he's got a piece of bad guy technology that is really there to serve the more provocative questions that we've been asking Going back to the prison thing, all right, if it's better to rehabilitate, and we just sort of take this for granted, better to rehabilitate than to punish or just capture prisoners, mm -hmm. then how do we go about that? And if we have a tool like this that allows us, you know, 60 years ago, we were doing electroshock treatment, and maybe not much longer ago than that, we were doing lobotomies to try to cure people, you know, again, in big quotes, cure people mm -hmm. of violent and uh, um, uncontrollable neurological disorders that, that would either make them outburst in criminal ways or socially unacceptable ways. And we kind of sort of figured that out, that that was the wrong thing to do, that going around and messing with people's minds literally was an absolutely unconscionable thing to do. There are a few questions that come up with the whole penal colony thing for me. I mean, first of all, it's kind of mm -hmm. a bummer that in the 23rd century we haven't – I mean, that we still need them. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a drag. But yeah. I'm willing to accept the possibility that we do because, I mean, you know, some people are – I mean, not to not to way oversimplify it, but some people are born bad. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, some and, – and there's nothing you can do about that. And so, I mean, there, there were a couple of things that I found kind of interesting, like when, when Bones – you know, when when Kirk is talking about how, you know, great prisons are now that Dr. Adams is there and Bones says a cage is a cage. I couldn't tell if Bones was saying a cage is a cage because, you know, damn it, prison's supposed to be tough. <laughs> so, a, you know, <laughs> a cage is a cage and I don't care what it looks like. We have prisons for a reason. I let them do their thing. Or if he was saying, no, it's all wrong. A cage is a cage. And so, you know, gild it if you want to. It's still bad. And it still yeah. it still needs to end. It was very it was very ambiguous on uh, on McCoy's part. Uh, my it, it's one of those lines that to me is open to interpretation, and I very much interpreted that as a cage is a cage, and that's bad, and we, we're doing something wrong as humanity if we still have to lock people up. But then the alternative that's presented here 
is that if we can go in and manipulate people uh, and and change their programming, as mm-hmm. it were, this is clearly wrong too. So uh, th- there has to be um, a, a compromise, a, a medium somewhere here to say, well, this amount of rehabilitation, this kind of rehabilitation is okay, mm-hmm. whereas this other thing isn't. It it also it seems to me. And this this sort of goes off of your question a tiny bit, or goes off of your point a tiny bit, is we have to decide what prison is supposed to be. Is prison yeah. is prison a punishment? Is prison a place for rehabilitation? Or is prison a place to keep the people who don't belong in prison safe? Is it separating out people who would damage society? Is it fixing people who would damage society? Or is it punishing people who would damage society? Yeah. And that actually, I mean, I guess depending on your answer to that question... Um, that might actually change how you feel about what it was that Dr. Adams was doing, except for to Kirk. But I mean, it might change, it might change your answer about what Dr. Adams was doing. Uh, The the problem with Adams too is, I mean, you're right. He did have a tiger. No, he didn't have a tiger by the tail because he couldn't, he couldn't control it. He had something incredibly powerful and he wanted to protect that more than anything else. I mean, he's, I mean, he, he becomes power mad at some point, which, which I, I think is, I mean, it's interesting. It's that's sort of separate from the technology. I don't. I don't think the technology is good, and don't don't think that this episode is going to end with me saying, "Oh yeah, sure, if you can just eliminate, you know, two fifths of your personality and and <laughs> and be a better citizen, then by God, that would be fantastic." But I mean, it is. I mean, it's sort of like what we talked about again. I, I cannot believe how much we're referencing this now, but it's sort of what we talked about with Corby. Mm-hmm. Corby had an amazing technology, but Corby was a flawed man. That technology in someone else's hands might not have actually been such a disastrous thing. And I know that we're supposed to think because, you know, of this story that, yes, that is just a terribly disastrous thing. Even a man as great as Dr. Roger Corby couldn't do it. But the other message here, and this, again, was a message, and I think we referenced it earlier. This was a message as well And what are little girls made of. I don't care what your name is. I'm going to check. I apologize, <laughs> but I mean, okay, good. You're a preeminent scientist in penal colonies. I'm not going to beam myself down to a prison to be played with. Call me right. crazy. I mean, that's just, you know. Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, Helen, um, uh, Helen Noel, she kind of has, she's starstruck mm-hmm. by uh, Dr. Adams. And when Kirk is posing these questions, right. she keeps saying, oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry. He knows what he's doing. And Kirk's like, no, 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 really, I want to see this machine. <laughs> and <laughs> Helen even has this line uh, where, where she says, well, that's a failed experiment. There's no value in that. And I'm thinking, whoa, what time out time out that's what science is all about is that you can learn something from the failures you know (laughs) (laughs) every piece of experimental data leads up to mean something and there is as much value in a failure as there is in a success um Corby and Adams again I go back to this thing of saying well you're presented with this technology why not just go ahead and use the scientific method and peer review and do this for real if you've got this. But maybe there is this message here that, uh, well, if you're presented with the technology that at least you're not ready for, you don't have the wisdom yet to use, then you're going to screw it up somehow or another. There was another thing that was um, kind of interesting in <sighs> – Van Gelder is worried that uh, when when Kirk says he's going to stay down on the planet, Van Van Gelder is worried because he says that uh, Kirk will suffer a right death, is what he says. Actually, that's what he's afraid of, right death. And and the thing that's kind of odd about that is we don't know. I mean, like, why would Van Gelder assume that? Because Van Gelder is not dead. What is he referring to there? Because it it, it seems obvious that that Van Gelder, I mean, not Van Gelder, Adams is not going to kill Kirk. Adams actually needs Kirk to go out and be a prophet for right. for for the Adams way at that point. The story that Adams makes up about what happened to Van Gelder is he was left alone too long in that room. Like he had no guide, like he had no spirit guide, like he had nobody mm-hmm. you know to tell him. And it turns out too at the end of it they decide that really what killed Adams was just the emptiness. His brain is emptied by the neural neutralizer, right? Right. Right. It made me think of LSD. Oh, really? <laughs> Sorry. Not, not because I was bored. Um, <laughs> have you read any of Timothy Leary or do you know anything about Timothy Leary? What I know about Timothy Leary, but I haven't read any. 
I always I always son. forget what the words are, and I've not read Timothy Leary. I've read about. Okay, mm-hmm. um, his idea for LSD was set set setting and purpose, and so mm. the idea was before you dropped acid, you decided what it was you wanted to accomplish. You then put yourself in a safe place, and mm-hmm. you had people help you do what it was that you needed or wanted to do. Set setting and purpose. These were the plans. Okay. This is why you will get people who drop acid by themselves or drop acid at a Pink Floyd concert or, you know, well, not Pink Floyd, obviously, anymore, but drop acid at a Pink <laughs> Floyd laserium show. Right. This is why you'll get people who, you know, drop acid with no real idea of what's going to happen, end up with horrible trips or, you know, just totally, like, strange things happen. I knew a guy. True story. A little bit long. I knew a guy who dropped acid and went to Graceland. But he dropped oh acid and went to Graceland on the night of the anniversary of Elvis's death. So there were thousands of people there with candles and, you know, singing songs and all that stuff. He woke up the next day and he knew everything about something that he called the Church of Elvis. And he didn't make it up. He knew it. It was something that <laughs> happened in his head because of where he was. He went without a purpose. He went without a plan. But he ended up in this place where all these people were, for all intents and purposes, worshiping Elvis. And the next day and for years after, he could tell you Everything about the Church of Elvis, okay? So -hmm. when you ask the question, can you die by being emptied? Can you die from having all of your memories removed or memories erased? Um, Whether you can die that way, I don't know. But, I mean, there is is something to to not monkeying around with it, (laughs) right? I mean, it's not a toy. The brain is also, while you can have a lot of fun with the brain, it's not a toy. Don't just go in and yank stuff out and assume that everything's going to be okay. I mean, because, because without... Without a real plan, without real knowledge of how to do it, and, and don't misunderstand, I'm not being a proponent of LSD at this point either. It's just what it reminded me of because without something to guide you through it, without a proper way to go, I mean, when you just start you know, screwing around with your brain, yeah, you might end up screwing up your brain. I, I think you, you hit kind of what I was thinking here, that whether or not Adams is dead, like literally physically dead at the end of the episode, is kind of irrelevant to me. What he suffered is uh, a, a mental and intellectual death. Right. That exactly this experiment has been carried out and there was no guide. There were no parameters set on how the procedure would happen. So – in the end, he's left with nothing. Um, but either way, we're saying that the experiment in and of itself is probably a bad thing no matter what, because how do you then go about defining what are the good parts, what are the bad parts? How do you go about reprogramming somebody? Even if you all agree that there are certain undesirable traits, those ultimately have to hold up and be a counter to the desirable traits that we want. Okay, now let me ask you a question. What about adding? About adding? Oh, all, well, all, all we've seen is he's going to take out the violent impulses, you know, all this stuff. But what if it was, you know, what if what if at Starfleet Academy, yeah. what if at Starfleet Academy you could sit in, you know, Dr. Adams' chair and suddenly know um, astrophysics? I mean, what if you could Boy, have what, that put in rather than talking yeah. about taking this stuff out? I mean, would that would that be a technology that you would be interested in? Because here we've been harping on all the bad things about what he's doing and about playing with your brain and all that stuff. But I mean, if if you could say, you know, learn French in six minutes, if I could have done that in eighth grade, that would have been <laughs> amazing. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, so yeah. so I mean, after all of the railing that we've done about playing with the brain, yeah, and how bad that is. Um, is 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 it just the subtraction that's bad? Would the addition be okay as far as you're concerned, or or do you just have to you know do it like Abe Lincoln did? Teach yourself to read, and walk <laughs> forty miles to return that book. I mean, do you? I mean, do you have to? Do you have to? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for learning in context. You know, right. that because you you can have knowledge, but you may not have the context to use it or or uh, process it properly. Yeah. So that may be part of it. Yeah. Although, you know, it, it's interesting. We we still try to uh, manipulate ourselves by all kinds of gimmicks like speed reading and, and you know, all these things to try to manipulate and, and trick our brains into being better than they really are. But I don't know if they really work. 
We are slicing, dicing, and deciding, do the messages and morals of this episode stand the test of time? So as we are wont to do at the end of an episode of Mission Log, we like to pose a few questions to each other and uh, see what we've learned at the end of the whole process here. So uh, the first question to you, Ken, does this episode hold up as a production, as a piece of entertainment? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I would say so. If you're a fan, especially if you're a fan. Um it does obviously bring up some very interesting um, um, uh, thoughts. I mean, some very interesting topics with which to play. I am a fan of James Gregory, so it was neat to see him. You know, um, Shatner is Shatner. He gets to be a little mm-hmm. bit funny at sometimes. There's actually a great little boy moment from Spock for all of his, you know, I have no emotions. When he walks in and sees um, Kirk and Noel <laughs> making out, it's like you're looking at a six-foot-tall eight-year-old. I mean, he's right. just like golly he doesn't know where to look he doesn't know how to look he just kind of stands there you know so there there's there's some fun parts about it um the there there's very little in the way of effects and honestly i think that tends to be a good thing uh when you're talking about a show that's almost 50 years old uh sometimes the effects are are amazing and sometimes the effects are terrible but if you can do a compelling science fiction story and a compelling episode and and not have to do much in the way of effects, then you don't run the risk of you know it looking cheesy in five years. The chair was scary. The thing that he was looking into was scary. I would say honestly, the Doctor Noel character might be the weakest part of the whole thing, um, but not enough to ruin the episode by any stretch of the imagination. Personally, I think it stands up. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree for all of those reasons. Um, I, I think the only thing that may not hold up for an audience today is that this is a very talky episode. You know, we're, we're given a lot of dialogue of what this whole thing is about. Mm-hmm. And then e- even even though the effect of the neural neutralizer is scary, it's this kind of light beam and and the noise that it's creating and all of that well and the, um, and the quick zoom the quick zoom in on it when they turn up the volume the quick oh, zoom yeah, yeah, actually yeah. made it a bit so. more made it a bit more scary in a way that it wouldn't have been like if it lowered down or you know right. if, it, if it, <laughs> right. or if the or if the all the colors in the room change i mean their light gets brighter but you know right there are right. a lot of ways they could have made that really cheesy and instead just kind of zooming in on it it's like you know Oh yeah, that's all Kirk sees now. That's it. That's that is yeah. his entire existence. Right, this moment is this one. Thing. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 So yeah, when, when we see that, it is very effective. And, and I think the only thing that I would want more of is again just sort of a better handle on Doctor Adams, and uh, maybe a handle on what went wrong with him and Van Gelder. Because well, at the end, okay, they they dropped off Van Gelder, and uh, now he's taken apart this neural neutralizer but hey guess what you've got a lot of prisoners with their brains scrambled now that you get to deal with good luck doctor yeah, do you think he gave them all back their bad memories maybe who knows and then who knows? sent them to a real prison right but uh but this is a this is a like i said a provocative episode and i i think that it, maybe there are some design elements, you know, that that the dove, the logo that you mentioned is uh, a little dated looking. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot that I like about this, a whole lot that I like about it. But now we come to the big question. What was the message here? And then does that message hold up? Well, I mean, I, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times now, but one obvious message would be, I mean, not what's the old Reagan line? Trust, but verify. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah, great. Yeah, let's hold Dr. Corby up. Fine. Let's hold Dr. Adams up. But let's not assume that everything that they're doing is is beyond reproach. If that is one of the messages, and certainly it's not the big message, but if that's one of the messages, then yeah, I think that one absolutely holds up. Talk to me about the brain part, though. What's the message there? Is it be careful doing this? Is it don't do it? I mean, what are, what what's... Well, I, I have I a hard time gelling that message. Tell me what you think that is. Yeah, I mean, it may sound kind of overly simplistic, but I, I think that we've seen this a couple of times now in Star Trek where we love our technology and we love the abilities that technology can give us. But there is a responsibility that comes along with how we discover that and how we use it. You know, again, I, I'm just going to throw out the idea here of – 
let's use the scientific method, folks, and uh, <laughs> let's let's maybe hypothesize and test before we just unleash this power that we've discovered that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen it before, and I think we very much see it here. There are not a lot of characters so far that we can chalk up as just being bad guys because they're bad. And I think that holds true in human history as well. Even the worst people think that they are doing right in some way. Uh, you know, wh- whether it's a self-centered right or a, a tribal kind of right that they think that they think they're doing what's best for their constituents, even if it means destruction for the rest of the world. Um, but we see it again here. These are men of science. They're two doctors who have been working on this technology that they think will have a benefit to all of mankind, but it gets out of their hands. And the problem is, once Dr. Adams has gone a little power mad with this, then, like I said, the motivation at that point almost doesn't matter. It's a mad scientist story. So then do you think maybe a one of the messages might be just not not only like trusting too much in one person but maybe not letting one person have too much power. Yeah, well uh, and uh, that's why the best kind of discoveries that we make are usually collaborative efforts. You know, we we, we want to take our time to make sure that we're not ultimately doing something destructive. You know, uh, along with technological and scientific advancement comes that sort of opening door of ethical responsibility. I, I think this one doesn't necessarily have, like you say, the, the you see Timmy moment and beat you over the head with a message. But those are the ideas that are presented here. And, um, and I think they're fascinating. New question for you, Hotshot. <laughs> okay. Did this episode um, make you think differently about anything that you've always thought you knew? I mean, did it, like, did it sort of like challenge you to think about something that you've always thought, well, this is the way hmm. it is and it's good. And now you've right. got to be like, eh, this is the way it is and I wonder. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I think that when it comes to thinking about the, the topic at hand here, like prisons and prisoners and the humane treatment mm-hmm. uh, of them – I, I think I've always felt like, well, rehabilitation has got to be better than captivity. That, that's what our prisons have to work toward is uh, the ability to rehabilitate and turn criminals into productive members of society. And then I watch something like this and I kind of think, well, can that even be done? And and do we get to a point where our attempt to do that is completely counterproductive? Because you strip the humanity out of the individual. So I don't know if it necessarily challenged – well, no, it kind of did. It kind of did challenge the belief. Uh, I I don't know that I felt really strongly one way or the other, but I I kind of felt that all along. And then this made me think, well, maybe there isn't an answer to that. We'll we'll keep looking for it. But but maybe in the meantime, all we can do is just be – humane hmm. what about you it's always been a difficult question for me so I, I don't know that I would say that it challenged the way I think about it I mean it did remind me that I've always wondered about it I mean it sort mm-hmm. of feels in in my 21st century head uh, prison feels like a necessary evil I mean I think yeah. there are things that we and it's hard to say even evil it, it's a necessary thing I guess but it can certainly be evil um, you ever been to Alcatraz uh, no, no, I haven't visited there. I, Alcatraz, I, I, the, the toughest part of Alcatraz has to have been the fact that it was this island right in the middle. I mean, like, you can see San Francisco so well right. from Alcatraz. And that strikes me as cruel. It's also a great place for a prison. I mean, because yeah. because those waters have shark. Plus, they have waters. And you got to be a pretty mm-hmm. good swimmer, and it's cold, and, you know. It, it's it's kind of cruel. So you're right. You want to be humane. There's still the question, though, of what prison is. Is it about rehabilitation? Is it about punishment? Or is it about, you know, keeping people who are dangerous to society away from society? And that has always sort of been a big question for me. The one thing that it does sort of bring to mind is is we hear more and more about um, private prisons or for-profit prisons 
as we hear more about governments outsourcing uh, prisons, mm. that you know that doesn't seem like a good idea. But that's not really something that's brought up in this show. But of course, anytime you start talking about that, it makes me think about it. So, right. So yes and no, I guess would be the answer to that question. I'm okay with that answer, Ken. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. You're welcome. All right, guys. Next week, make sure that you join us when a gruesome alien has Kirk on the verge of scuttling his own ship. It is the Corbomite Maneuver. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. We will talk to you next week, when this episode will be just a memory. Or maybe not. and transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com